0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barkers UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this month's UK Roundtable, we talk about the energy crisis and beyond, and what it means for the UK's small and medium sized business community. We also look at the likely political response to what we are seeing, and what we can learn from the recent party conferences. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Chris Forrest, Head of SME UK at Barclays Business Bank, Olivia Gleeson, UK Government Relations Expert, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Join Barclays experts and keynote speaker, Emily Bellet, CEO and founder of Vespod, at a virtual event on the 20th of October at 11am to discuss the growing trend of women investors and how to become a confident investor. For more information, click on the link in this week's podcast summary.
1: Hello, welcome to another UK Roundtable, where we bring to you a panel of experts to discuss the latest on the UK. So this week, I'm delighted to welcome an old friend, Chris Forrest, one of our chiefs of our business bank, to help us decipher what we're seeing at the moment, especially with regards to the energy crisis and and what that means for the UK's all-important small and medium-sized business community. Also, to help us unpick the likely political response to what we're seeing, and she was name-checked last week, and to sift any meaning from uh, what we heard out of the party conferences, I'm delighted that we've got Olivia Gleeson back with us. And of course, as always, we have Will to give The economist take and relay some of the broader investment team's thoughts on the UK capital markets. So hi, Chris. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Will. How are you all doing?
2: Very well, thank you, Nikki. Yes, Very good. Thank you
3: for the invite, Nikki. Thank you. It's lovely to have you, Chris. A
1: fresh voice. (laughs) And Olivia, you decided to uh, rise to the challenge and and come and try and make sense of of party season. And by party season, I mean party conference season.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Any chance to comment on uh, politicians dancing? Yeah, you know where I am. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Well, <laughs> right, you, you saved me getting fired by commenting myself. So thank you, Yeah, we did, we
1: did have to suppress Will somewhat last week, Olivia. I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure you were listening you to be sure of that. <laughs> um, so before we get into the discussion on the wider UK economy, Will, can you give us a lowdown? What's been going on in the wider world, uh, the world of markets and all things in between since we last spoke?
2: Well, I'll keep it brief because we've got a lot to get on with today. But I mean, it's quite a familiar group of stories doing the rounds, really. Corporate earnings season is just starting. So we're going to hear from many of the world's major companies about what's going on in their world, the latest of what's going on in their their, their respective worlds. The big focus for this reporting season will be any commentary on supply chain pressures, hiring pressures uh, and how these companies are absorbing those costs or indeed Passing them on to their end customers. Actually, with regards to the UK, one of our research providers was pointing out that in the latest UK uh, CBI manufacturing survey, total order volumes and average selling prices were both at around 40 year highs, suggesting that, uh, you know, prices were being passed on. Now, in a sense, that suggests that stagflation, there may be some overstatement in what's going on in the sort of buzzword at the moment, you know, stagflation. However, the combination of energy shocks, high inflation and slowing growth, uh, uh, is all too reminiscent of the nineteen seventies to some. Uh, not the good bits, such as the music. The bad stuff. Uh, remember, the period was was among many other things a terrible period to be an investor.
1: Mm. Okay, and I mean that sounds pretty much like the same checklist of things that we need to think about when we're when we're talking about the UK too.
2: Yeah, yeah, correct. Um, and actually you might argue that the UK is, is maybe a little bit more at risk of stagflation for a number of reasons than much of the rest of the world, where we currently judge that the threat to be low, but it's likely pretty contained here too, to be honest. For now at least. Um, the energy cost surges are, are really unhelpful for many of us households, that's for sure. Uh, particularly at the lower income levels where energy costs take up proportionally more of household budgets. So I think you know, gas and electricity accounts for around three percent of the weekly budget. For uh, UK households on average, but uh, closer to 10% for the bottom decile, the bottom 10% of um, households. However, Ofgem will obviously cap some of the rise in retail prices. So, forecasts I've seen suggest a 12% rise in standard variable electricity gas tariff in October, followed by another 12% in April 22. That's set against wholesale gas prices rising fourfold uh, in recent weeks compared to the same period last year. But, you know, in terms of sort of the sort of news on the good news on the horizon, you know, the market expectation is for that extra Russian supply that we've been hearing about to let the air out of back out of prices reasonably swiftly after that. Um, And we're also seeing currently some offset in terms of wages for low income houses, which are seem to pick up a bit more briskly than some of the other segments of the labour force. But again, the data here is pretty, pretty noisy. But I think the labour market really is, you know, the key to all of this, because the Bank of England, the Monetary Policy Committee has its, you know, very clearly, very publicly, obviously has its collective finger on the interest rate trigger. And that finger appears to be twitchier than some of its developed market, developed world peers for a number of reasons. But the key as to whether they will go with the rate rise in November, most people seem to argue, and they themselves are pointing this out, which is much earlier than thought only a couple of months ago, is really how quickly, how smoothly these record high job vacancies are filled. Is there an easy switch to be made from that huge residual still on the furlough scheme right to the bitter end, can that fill those vacancies? And a lot of this kind of, a lot of the both the vacancies and the furlough residual it was in hospitality and therefore London, actually. And there are some indications that although advertised jobs and job seekers have a lot of overlap at the sector level, there may be a bit of a mismatch on the specifics of skills um, on furlough versus skills needed at the more um, more granular level. We will see. We, we, we still think that rates are more likely next year's story, but it's certainly closer than we or anyone else expected a couple of only a couple of months ago. And November and December will be what are called live meetings.
1: OK. And Olivia, I guess as we think about the sort of energy crisis, what are you seeing as the government response here or the likely government response?
4: Sure. I mean, straight to the serious stuff. Nikki, yeah, I was yeah. sort of hoping you were going to ask me about the minister's sort of karaoke choices <laughs> oh, that'll come. Or, or something <laughs> a little bit more lighthearted. But you're right. You know, sort of government are grappling sort of three challenges at the moment. We've got energy, electricity and, and food. And now, full disclaimer, this isn't my commentary, but I, you did note the former uh, Deputy Prime Minister Michael Hessertine's comments over the weekend that the government sort of lurching from crisis to crisis at the moment is quite apt. Now, I think, you know, we saw what happened with fuel. There was that sort of toxic combination of of labour shortages, uh, lack of government intervention right up until the last minute, which culminated in some pretty acute shortages and distress uh, with the country's sort of road network almost grinding to a halt. So I think questions are really being asked about the government's approach to such crises and, you know, Is this sort of an essay crisis government? You know, what I mean by that is, do they leave it right up until the last minute to act? And, you know, just a few weeks after fuel, government find themselves again in the eye of the storm with rocketing gas prices and threats to supply. So I think in the immediate instance, we have seen some moves. You know, government were very quick to confirm that they intend to keep the uh, consumer energy price cap over the winter to sort of stop any uh, big bill hikes. But I think where the real battleground is emerging is what about the impact on businesses and industry and, you know, what is government going to do there? Now, we've already seen quite a few sort of small firm casualties. I mean, the energy companies themselves in recent weeks, but where the sort of biggest uh, elephant in the room is, is what about those energy intensive industries that are putting a lot of pressure on government uh, for financial support? And I think, you know, Labour's intervention here was pretty interesting. They're asking a very important policy question you know which government sort of yet to definitively answer you know are these industries you know energy intensive ones like steel paper cement to name a few of strategic importance to the UK plc and if so you know what support should be tendered to help them survive through the winter and you know don't forget many of these industries are in red wall seats but I think from a political perspective the thing to note is there's a real philosophical tension if I might describe it as that in government so you've got on the one hand, you know, the Department of Business sort of quite heavily promoting the idea of subsidies or financial support packages for steel and those other types of sectors. While at the other end of the spectrum, we've got the Treasury, who came out quite you know, publicly over the weekend to slap down the idea of government handouts. And I think, you know, the concern, if I'm sort of sympathized with Treasury for a minute, you know, the concern is that industries maybe become too quick to call to be rescued. And the pandemic has kind of raised expectations that the government is prepared to step in with a checkbook. When things get tough, so you know, do businesses need to be weaned off the idea that the first port of call is government subsidy? So um, we've got those two perspectives, and then finally, you know, to number ten, probably the most important perspective of all. I think you know, the prime minister, off the back of the fuel crisis, which is still quite fresh in the electorate's minds, is obviously you know quite reluctant to see any front pages detailing the collapse of sort of symbolic UK firms. So. I do think, given that perspective, we're going to see some movement in, in the coming days. TBC, what exactly this government support package could look like? And, you know, I very much doubt we're going to see sort of open checks for industry. But yeah, we're watching on with interest as to what might happen here.
1: And and Chris, you know, Olivia's just talked about a, a mix of potential actions that perhaps government could take. But obviously, you're right at the sharp end talking to many of these corporates. So when you're talking to them, what are you hearing? Obviously I, I imagine there are some in sectors where they're more deeply affected and, and more affected right now compared to others. Can you can you just give us a flavour of what you're seeing at the sharp end?
3: Sure, thanks, Nikki. Thank you. Yeah, I think it I mean it's it's an interesting conversation. I think when you get to the sharp end, I, I talked to a care home provider and um, this morning. It gives a good example of what they're going through. So having got through an an awful pandemic, emotionally, um, the board of that business is thinking, crikey, we've got some calm water, and then energy hits. And then if you think about businesses that are intensive energy users, it's not just the manufacturers or big organizations, but you think a care home heating, a bunch of care homes in the winter, that's quite tough. So I think across the landscape on energy, particularly in SME space, it's the uncertainty and the fact that you may have a cap in a consumer. Consumers may have a cap to go to, but it's not that same protection in business. So I think Will's point is opposite around what might happen in terms of Russia. But I think if you're running a business with multiple plates to spin, this is this is quite an unwelcome thing. And actually, emotionally, passing that cost on can be quite challenging. So I think um, that's where the energy, energy um Debate it's quite difficult for SME to, to wrap their head around. Coupled with the fuel, which again is is another debate, Nicky, because I think the fuel crisis, if you like, is multi-layered and there's so many different things going on there. Whether it's availability of transportation, importing, exporting, those challenges around um, getting drivers, getting skilled labour, and, and the knock-on effect through the supply chains, actually both domestically and and across across Europe and beyond. That's that's quite a challenge. So I think if I'm an SME at the moment or a larger corporate, I'm thinking, what's next? And do I have the confidence to keep going? Because actually, the, you know, the orders are coming through quite nicely, but my costs are, are very uncertain at the minute.
1: Yeah, and and Chris, as you say there, I mean, labour shortages impacting on on some of those small and medium enterprises to be able to get goods and move around. But Olivia, just thinking a bit about especially the shortages of HGV drivers, um, lots of differing opinions as to how Specific to Brexit, the root cause of that is. But, but as far as any kind of reading of the runes from the Prime Minister's speech at at the Conservative Party conference, anything there that we can read into as far as where we go from here?
4: Yeah, of course. I mean, I think one observation from this conference was the seemingly whole sort of new economic policy, virtually announced by stealth, sort of in the Prime Minister's speech. You know, his comments about moving away from low-skilled immigration, which he described as plaguing the UK's broken economic model towards a high skilled and high waged economy was perhaps the clearest indication we've had to date of what this government's sort of post Brexit economic policy vision is. And I think, you know, the focus on immigration is somewhat unsurprising. Remember Boris Johnson's philosophy about Brexit was much to do with regaining the power to decide who comes to live and work in the UK. So the fact he also believes it's good economics follows on from this. And, you know, of course, endeavours to raise incomes in the UK is a noble aim. But I think it is worth touching on the level of critique we saw from trade unions and much of industry that followed conference. It's perhaps unsurprising when post-Brexit many sectors are faced with quite significant uh, labour shortages, as you and Chris just described. And I think the pragmatism from government's vision, you know, particularly on labour at this significant time of strife, is perhaps a little bit disappointing for many in industry industry. And I think, you know, that critique sort of touches on a wider point that whilst post-conference government's economic vision is abundantly clear, the transition to get to that end goal, I think slightly less meat on the bones there. So I think as we look into autumn with the hope and expectation that government will be coming forward with some more details, we've obviously got budget coming up and the forthcoming spending review. So I think we're all sort of waiting to see how this vision might materialise in practice.
1: And that sort of new dogma that we heard the prime minister speaking about how he sees the economy playing out stronger, what some are dubbing ogenomics, doesn't exactly roll off the tongue but that certainly represents (laughs) quite a shift, right? So from your perspective, I mean, you mentioned a bit there around the different constituents in politics, but for those different constituencies, what what do you see as the challenges that the Prime Minister will have by trying to deliver this new world order, if you will, for the UK, the the Bogenomics as the answer?
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm actually a bit disappointed. I didn't coin the phrase uh, myself. I think it's quite catchy, even if it doesn't, you know, roll off the tongue. But I think, you know, on the face of it, Bojonomics is certainly pretty powerful stuff. It's, it's justification of Brexit. It's a defence of capitalism, of levelling up and economic equality. But, you know, with it, I think that vision presents quite a number of challenges. I think, you know, earlier I sort of touched on the economic and practical ones, but politically it's tricky. Now, while, of course, Tory MPs want to row behind the Prime Minister's vision, you know, it's hopeful, it's ambitious. It puts the UK front and centre stage They're also very mindful of what it means for their constituents on the ground. And these are constituents faced with those shortages, those rocketing prices and and tax hikes, uh, but to name a few. And I think there is a sense from certain wings of the party that perhaps the prime minister should be adopting a slightly more pragmatic economic approach, uh, at least in the short term. Now, there's also some scepticism over the merits of this approach in the longer term. Some MPs are questioning whether there are certain jobs British people just no longer want to do. So how realistic is it to move away from this low skilled immigration economy? So, you know, I won't get into it too much here, but I do think there's a lot still to be worked through in this new economic policy. And I think, you know, I'll obviously be keeping an eye out for any developments to sort of flag as part of future uh, discussions on this podcast.
1: Brilliant. Thank you, Olivia. And and Chris, I mean, coming back to you as the voice of of these businesses on, on this call, I guess that potentially very dramatic change in in model for the UK economy for the businesses within it specifically certain sectors like hospitality fruit picking etc that has typically been a net user of of lower paid workers typically lower paid workers from from other countries so what are you hearing from your customer base in in the business world?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. It wasn't that long ago, was it, Nikki, that we were talking about the end of furlough and uh, mass unemployment, which hasn't materialised, and you know over a million pound, a million sorry, job vacancies out there, and every business on the high street seems to have we are hiring notices that I can see. Certainly, the the SMEs I talk to are are struggling with that. They're struggling with um, keeping wage inflation, which I know Will will talk in a second about keeping that wage inflation down getting the skills shortages they may have, and also just um, you know, just keeping the show on the road without having to pass on that price inflation. So I think there's a few things going on there in different sectors, whether it's highly skilled people or whether it is less skilled jobs being fulfilled. But that, that's definitely the mood music, whereas only, only a month or two ago, they were worrying that unemployment might feature
2: can I just say, I'm going to blame Chris for this because he actually invited me, but it invited me to speak on this. And I will say that there is some historical precedent to go on here. I hear you groan. <laughs> But but there is. but And and actually, you know, it it is a couple of hundred years ago, unfortunately, but basically the juxtaposition of high wages as a result of Britain's preceding success in global textiles uh, with low cost, easily accessible coal is seen as, uh, which is obviously not what we have right now, uh, is seen by some academics as the key reason why the first industrial revolution was born in the UK rather than China or many other competing kind of nation states at the time. Now, if you think about it, this mixture provided the economic incentives for businesses and individuals to invest in technology to ex- to replace uh, increasingly expensive labor. Now that replaced labor was soon absorbed uh, into the freshly created industries that cropped up as a result of the revolution, something that continued to happen for ensuing centuries as the job market shifted from agriculture to industry to services. So perhaps the same will be true again. High wages amidst more restrained immigration may indeed force businesses and other actors to invest more uh, in skills domestically. The substitution of labour for machines may also be given welcome impetus uh, if we retain faith that the economy will continue to create new jobs to always absorb those displaced workers. Furthermore, the argument that some of that famously long tail of struggling businesses in the UK will be cut off by these higher wage requirements could also be accurate and positive for productivity, if, if, you know, in a slightly cruel way. However, here we get to the sort of, you know, the however bit. But, uh, you know, the first thing I'd say is that so-called rump of the UK's corporate sector is a lot larger than widely imagined. And the proposed answers to the UK's productivity conundrum, which we've been stuck with for this last decade plus, there are many and various. High wages may be part of it, but without the productivity to merit it, stagflation, that buzzword, does become the likely reality. Now, back to history again. One of the major characteristics of England, fuelled by the Scottish Enlightenment, and the run-up to this all-important first industrial revolution that I literally can't seem to stop <laughs> banging on about, was an openness to ideas from beyond these shores. Certainly the domestic macroeconomic context was aligned. The incentives for innovators to think harder on ways to improve productivity were there. However, you know, part of the elixir of that and many other sustained productivity booms around the world is the atmosphere of inquiry, a receptiveness to new and challenging ideas and the appetite to implement them. Now, for many reasons, this latter part seems to have gone missing for some parts of the UK corporate sector in the last few years. Now, factors beyond the corporate sector's control, are, you know, surely play a massive role. I mean, Chris alluded to it, but the years since 2007 have contained more than their fair share of confidence sapping turmoil. Even 2021 has both domestic and international. However, my point, long-winded point, is that facilitating the spread of corporate best practice and the frontier of technology beyond those kind of high-achieving corners of the UK, UK's businesses, that you know remains something to be sold urgently if the UK is to return to the productivity top table you' once lauded it over. Now wages may be part of that, but I think both Chris and Olivia have highlighted the complications in. Transitioning to that economy, and is, and we still don't know many of the details. So, you know,
3: and Will, just, you've, um, you have been telling that story for a few years. When are you <laughs> going to write the book on it? That's why I wanted. To <laughs> I'm just copying.
2: I'm standing on other people's shoulders, Chris. You know that. <laughs> so yeah, but, uh, but soon. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: we'll give him uh, a little bit of time off to uh, sharpen his quill to write that. And Will, I know, obviously, you talk very frequently about us making sure that we don't confuse. The stock market, the market activity with potentially what happens in the economy, they are often quite dislocated and different. And of course, here in the UK, our home market, the FTSE, the top 100 companies or, or the all share index, very few of those companies within those indices actually make much of their profits from the UK at all. So, you know, that's one component to consider. But but I guess more pertinent to the topics that we've covered so far in this Discussion. What we do have is quite a concentration of commodity and energy companies in in the FTSE, which is possibly one of the reasons why the FTSE, the UK market, has lagged the rest of the world's stock markets over well the economic cycle that we've been through. So, it does seem to be reversing somewhat this year. What? Do you expect to happen going forward? Million dollar question, of course.
2: Yeah. Don't listen to anything I say on this. Honestly. Yeah. So no, I mean, I think the thing with the UK stock market at the moment is that it's seen as inexpensive on a range of metrics relative to other markets and actually relative to its own history to, you know, on some metrics. Now we also know that being inexpensive is not enough at. Either the level of the individual company sector or index. That's not enough to get a, get a market or a stock or a sector going up or down. Um, to be honest, that's, that's just one of the inputs into, into performance. What you need is this this inexpensiveness and a match with the characteristics that are currently in demand thanks to the prevailing economic, political or regulatory context. Now, the UK's FTSE has plenty of uh, stocks and sectors that have simply been out of fashion for a decade, to be honest. Sexier stories have been in the U.S., However, if the history of markets teaches us anything, um, it's that quite unpredictably uh, and quite rapidly, what was once sexy can quickly become quite dour and drab uh, thanks to a change in the environment. And, you know, furthermore, if we're looking right now and this conversation is all part of this story, but if we look at the decade ahead... And we look at, compare that to the decades behind. And Nikki, you and I have spoken about this. You know, the decades behind are characterised by what's called an enormous kind of supply side story. So Chinese labour flooding the market for labor and uh, you know reducing bargaining power for uh, developed world workers in many ways and so you've seen very little sort of wage pressure the shale boom is another factor that's also kind of led to this kind of inflation like growth from the last cycle well many people are speculating that actually what you're seeing now is an end to that you're entering a period of much more scarcity from a labor perspective an aging workforce no more china's waiting to happen to the global economy and also you know you're seeing it in the energy space as we transition away from the fossil fuels that have kept the lights on for so many centuries, onto currently more fickle renewable energy or intermittent renewable energy, the fact is that we're going to need a lot of fossil fuels. It's been underinvested in, so it's going to be a bit more expensive. So, you know, we may be entering into a period with more volatile inflation, a different trend in real interest rates, all those kind of things. And that probably means a totally different winner-loser board in terms of capital markets. Maybe the UK is at the top of this one. Who knows?
1: Well, let's see. It's going to be interesting to watch, isn't it? And anecdotally, so I I won't be around next week. I'm I'm having my long-awaited summer holiday. And what's happened here is that the Eggers family is off to Cornwall for a week. Being super organised, we had a bunch of restaurants pre-booked. We've had a flooding in of cancellations from a few of those said restaurants because they just can't open, they don't have the staff. So everything Chris talked about around some of the hardships that certain companies are facing, I think even your average consumer like myself is seeing that beyond the queues for for petrol and, and the things that we've all experienced over the last few weeks and the concerns about our, our fuel bills over the winter period. So it's going to be as, as you mentioned, Will, that shift, you talked about it happening a couple of centuries ago, but, but equally it takes quite a lot of years to adjust and there's winners and losers during that adjustment, which is going to be quite hard. But anyway, we will keep our, our listeners informed and especially to you, Chris, and to Olivia, thank you so much for joining Will and me.
0: All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.